For every single one of us, grief is a certain and profound component of the fabric of our lives. And yet grief is one of the hardest emotions to process and the most difficult to discuss, particularly when it comes to the workplace. A 2021 survey of employees by the Marie Curie Support Charity found that 29% of employees were not confident in knowing what to say to a bereaved colleague while 14% of HR professionals were not confident they'd know what to say to a bereaved employee. And even more difficult than talking about grief at work is showing up at work while grieving and worrying about the impact of taking time off. The same survey found that 58% of employees felt that their performance was affected by grief months after bereavement and 54% of employees worried that taking time off after a bereavement would affect their job security. For those reasons and many more, how the workplace responds to grief can greatly impact our healing process. And as with all aspects of mental health at work, it starts with a kind and compassionate leadership. In this week's episode, I spoke to Kelly Davies, a communications consultant at the World Bank, who in 2017, tragically lost her husband Charles to AML leukemia. Kelly shared her grieving process and spoke about how to create a grief-informed workplace, as well as how to ask for what you need at work, how to recognize when someone is struggling, and the importance of taking care of our workplace community in both easy times and those that are not so easy. Hi everyone, and welcome back to MindWork, where we're on a mission to transform mental health in the workplace one story at a time. I'm your host, Jasmine Elgamal. Hi, Kelly. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Kelly, throughout the season of Mind Work, we've talked about a bunch of different issues related to mental health in the workplace. We've talked to journalists who cover conflict. We've talked to people who live in a crisis. We've talked about dealing with trauma. We've talked about resilience. The one thing we haven't yet talked about is actually the one issue that inevitably affects all of us throughout our life and our career, and that's grief and loss and losing someone you love while also having to show up at work. And I know that you've had experience with that, and I wanted to hear from you. What was your experience with grief, if you want to start out by sharing that with us? Yeah, it's a very big topic. It's a very heavy topic and it's uncomfortable for many people. But anyone who knows anything about the statistics, it is very evident that everyone in this world will at some point deal with grief and loss. So for me, taking grief and loss and making it more of a broader conversation, especially in the workforce, is extremely important because you're going to work with somebody, you might work for somebody or under somebody who is going to experience this and it's going to affect your work community. It can be the loss of, you know, a spouse, it can be the loss of a child, but it can also be the loss of a pet. And it just depends on how, how well you experience the grieving process. And a big part of that is how the people around you help kind of show up to your grieving process. Yeah. So my story is, it's a long, complicated journey, but it, it basically began in 2014. My first husband was diagnosed with AML leukemia, which is the, ba- the baddest of them all, if you're going to get leukemia. Yeah. 
And basically, he we moved from Washington, D.C. to Seattle. He had a 90% chance of, of remaining in remission. And of course, two years later, he relapsed. So we were back from the West Coast to the East Coast. We were living in Washington, D.C. I was working as a consultant at the World Bank, where my first husband had also worked. And he was actually taking care of our, our infant and at that point, one-year-old son recovering from, because cancer is so just catastrophic to your body, recovering from cancer and getting stronger and stronger every day as he also planned to return to the office. I was the person who was going to work and I was the person who was basically making the, the money so that we could pay our rent, you know, pay all of the things that you, you have to, even when you have it, a, a spouse or a partner who is extremely, extremely ill. And my husband at the time was at home with our child, providing extremely important childcare and, and getting to spend time, very, very valuable time with our child. Yeah. But it was extremely stressful to have to have, to, to bear the brunt of the responsibilities in yeah. the workplace while my husband recovered at the time from cancer. And it sounds like so much pressure not only are you the sole provider financially, obviously he was providing in, in a different way by taking care of your child, but the pressure of having to show up to work and get that paycheck because that paycheck is what's keeping you afloat as you are going through this. I can't even imagine the medical bills and that whole situation, but you must have been dealing with so many difficult emotions as well. I mean, sadness, relief. At that point, he was in remission, but you had also gone through so much up until that point, wondering whether he was going to get better or not. How did you find the energy to get up and go to work? And how did you show up at work? You know, would you show up with your grief? Did people know what was going on? Or were you kind of trying to keep those things separate? So I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to back up. We were Although we were very unlucky, my first husband, Charles, was diagnosed. We'd been married less than a year. We had a two-month-old child. And he had this kind of just devastating diagnosis and prognosis. We had a community around us. And I really have to give credit where credit is due. The Lebanese-American community and then the wider community outside of that. And actually, if we look at work as a community, which it is, and certainly the World Bank is a community. You mm -hmm. have these concentric circles of community that really rallied around us. And we had this big move and everyone knew that we were a young couple. I was a consultant. Charles was a consultant. We were making this big leap and two very lucky things happened. The Obama healthcare was pushed right. through and it was operating and we had added Charles to my insurance very late in the game, but we had added him. And the day before he had had his blood workup because he was very, very tired and we thought it was probably working. He was working so much. We had this new baby. Uh, he became an active participant on my insurance. And the day that he got his blood work back, it, he became like the million dollar baby. So wow. our insurance covered, luckily, by the, the skin of our teeth, most of the medical bills, including our life in Seattle. The second yeah. lucky thing that happened Again, going back to that community, that broader community that's not just nuclear family, is the fact that his friends, our friends, did this huge GoFundMe campaign 
and a lot of money and a lot of interest and a lot of carrying us through that period of time. A lot of money was raised so that we could pay our bills. But then we received this check out of nowhere. This would have been Thanksgiving 2014 from an Arab American businessman in Texas for $50,000. Oh my gosh. And that changed everything. The stress of having to work because I wasn't working. He wasn't working. We were both just really concentrating on William as well as just getting through cancer treatment. Changed the dynamic. And then when he was in remission, that allowed us to move back to D.C. and then to start over. So when my future employer interviewed me for the position at the World Bank, which, by the way, I got because of that community of friends around us mm-hmm. who knew I was looking for work and I'd had a good career behind me where I'd put on an event for Bill Clinton. And again, a little bit more luck that my boss, they were looking for somebody. There was a need and it just happened to happen. So when I got the job at the World Bank, I was, the word desperate comes to mind, but also so very grateful. And I think that kind of gratitude made me really want to prove myself. And I also was coming out of having a baby, not having work during that period of time, and that the need for women to have to prove themselves. Right, which is already there. I mean, even without the grief aspect, without anything else, just showing up to work, knowing that you have a baby at home, you're already trying to prove that no, no, this is not going to be an issue. I'm just like everybody else. So add to that everything else that was happening. But I'm curious, this businessman, did you guys know him at all? Or was it no. the GoFundMe? Or I mean, what an angel. Just, it was, it really, it was, it was just word of mouth. He'd seen something on Facebook and we just received a letter with a check in the mail. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. It was really unbelievable. And it made Charles want to do the same thing, albeit yeah. on a smaller scale for people who didn't have anything and had similar circumstances. So it was really virtuous cycle of giving. So when you went back then and you went to work and you were interviewing for this job, how open were you with your employer? The reason I ask is because I feel like this is a question that always stumps people. And I think people have different views on it. How open are you with your employer about your home life? And of course, sometimes your home life bleeds into your work life a bit more so than in other cases. But I know a lot of people have this very black and white, what happens at home stays at home, what happens at work stays at work. But then that makes it a bit tough for that community aspect that you mentioned to kick into gear. So what was your approach? So this is pre-COVID, 2014, 2015. So my interview process happened remotely which is, of course, now how the world operates, which is fantastic. But I had to kind of sell myself across the airwaves back to D.C. And the two women that I was interviewing with or being interviewed by, both of those women had experienced grief and loss in different ways. And so one of them had lost their father and the other one recently lost their father. And they'd had to go through this whole onerous process of, reclaiming his things. And, and then my other boss, she, it hadn't been a death, but it had been a long process of trying to get pregnant, not getting pregnant, having to lose babies and be on hospital leave or be on leave, extended leave for a long period of time. So they both got it and they didn't have to have walked in my shoes to understand 
that it takes time and that it yeah. takes patience and that it takes a checking in and conversations to work with somebody who's going through extreme stress and then later grief, which is how my story definitely ended or began. I would say that I am very open and I have always been very open and have tried to academically understand the things that are happening to me. Maybe that's because I'm an Aquarius, but rather than it just being a big emotion that I'm feeling that I don't understand, I yeah. want to know what's happening. Where's the brain activity? Where, what are my neurons doing right now? Why is this happening the way that mm -hmm. Because I think if I understand it, then that will give me a little bit more maybe control, which is a total fallacy and it absolutely does not. <laughs> so are you saying that that approach didn't work or did it help? Because I'm curious how you I, even came to that approach. Were you, have I you always been like this? Yeah. I mean, I was researching things when Charles's doctors were saying, don't go onto the internet. Don't research. It's just a big black box. Don't do it. Always needed to have knowledge. And I think yeah. that knowledge can be also very dangerous if we think about conspiracy theorists and how people can fall into kind of news cycles. But for me, you know, reading and understanding and understanding the grieving process and understanding uh, what it is and how it is I need to take care of myself. I mean, I think this is the most used expression, but you're on the airplane, you have to put your oxygen mask on yeah. first. But when you're married to a Lebanese man, you know, this is a crazy way of thinking that you would yeah. take care of yourself first. Come on. So there was a lot of cultural meetings of the mind, I think, that were an added difficulty or certainly an added challenge. It wasn't mm -hmm. just straight black and white. You have cancer and I'm going to go to work. It's you're an Arab man who has cancer. You used to be working. You were extremely vital. And now your wife is going to the office and your wife is going to the meeting and your wife wants to have a cocktail after work. So it's yeah. extremely difficult. Yeah. But I totally understand what you're saying about that need for information and that need for knowledge. It does make you feel a little bit more in control as much as you can feel in control, like just to know, to hear from others, to see what else has happened in other cases. So you mentioned you had these concentric circles, this, these communities that were supporting you. Did you ever go and look online for people who are going through the same situation as you, like support groups or other moms or other spouses of people who are going through the same thing? Or were you bolstered enough by your community in real life? I think that, that when you're going through something, there's two reactions, right? You're going through something and your community either kind of comes to your aid or then there's people who also will go the opposite direction because they just don't know how to approach you. They don't know what to say. Or when they say something, it's absolutely the wrong thing. Like, it's going to be okay. Or yeah. everything happens for a reason. It's really, I mean, the human reaction, right? Of course, people want to be sympathetic and people want to say something, but it's so hard sometimes to know what to say. I remember when my dad passed away, I got a spectrum of responses. I still remember one of them. I had to keep reminding myself like they meant well. They didn't know what else to say. They're trying to forge a bond. But of course, and actually this goes to another question I was about to ask you about connection and community. When my dad passed, 
whether it was at work or outside of work, I suddenly found that I only wanted to talk to people who had also lost a parent because only you can understand what I'm going through right now. Anyone else, I don't want to hear from at all. And I remember after the funeral, I had taken 10 days off. I was in Egypt at the time. And I remember my boss before I left saying, you can take as much time off as you need, you know, just come back when you're ready. And I think around day eight or nine, I called from Egypt and I was like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to come back. And then he said, but it's been 10 days. I mean, don't you think that's enough? And I just remember thinking, well, this guy's obviously never lost a parent. Mm. And of course, I went back to work, but I went back to work way before I was ready in hindsight. It was a very competitive environment. It was a high stress environment. It was national security. And I think there was that sense around me that I got, which was you carry on. I had another supervisor whose father died who came back to work the next day. And you hear stories like that and see stories like that. And you think that, okay, well, this is what I have to do. But it sounds from what you're saying that you had the opposite reaction at the bank because of those two supervisors that had also gone through that experience. Yeah, I was very lucky. I mean, the nature of my job at the time was as a short-term consultant. As a short-term consultant at the World Bank, you can only work 150 days in the fiscal year. You can kind of pace your work. Now, this is, of course, you know, not what happens. People end up, of course, overworking and undercharging. Yeah. So I could kind of be flexible. I mean, the, the STC role is meant to be flexible. But the truth is that, that there are things that have to be done. But the thing that, and of course, for me as a consultant, if you don't work on a project, you're not paid, you know, I'm project based. So there was that pressure. But my, the big boss, who was now the big boss at the World Bank, his father had died of the same disease. So when Charles wow. eventually passed, there was such, and he's like Austrian, Dutch, and very gruff and very results based. Mm -hmm. But he would check in on me pretty much every day, just stop by my office since, you know, we would just have kind of small, small talk. Mm -hmm. And when Charles died and we had this, you know, 40 day thing at my house, he came, which was a big deal. It was like Muhammad coming to the mountain, the fact that he yeah. would do that. But it was such a, a, sh a show of respect. We know that grief happens at the workplace and we know yeah. that it will impact your bottom line. So the best way to deal with that is to inform the people that you work with about the grieving process. And for sure, when something happens to you and you are grieving, you are going to suffer from brain fog. You are going to suffer from, it's not depression. Grief and depression are completely separate things. They cannot be fixed in the same way. Grief is not just sadness. It is a state of wanting and yearning. You want to see that person, you know, that person's not on an airplane. Yeah. And I can best kind of describe this by the way my mother-in-law, my, my first mother-in-law, I have two. She still views Charles because in order to, for her to, to go about her business every day, she believes that Charles is in Washington, D.C. That right. is how, you know, he is still alive. He's just not right. in her, you know, not in her framework as he always yeah. was. So, you know, there is a way to tell your coworkers when you're transitioning back, when you were eventually going to go back to that competitive workplace, 
imagine if the colleagues that you worked with had all been grief informed and that they'd had conversations. You know, when Jasmine gets back, she's going to be disorganized. She's going to be really tired. There's going to be a fatigue issue at the end of the day. And we're going to have to share her workload. We're going to have to look at her portfolio and split it in a multitude of ways. And then if we see that this grief isn't resolving itself, because grief does resolve itself eventually. But unfortunately, there are some people who don't deal with their grief, and that's called complicated grief. Yeah. And the complicated grief, I'm sure we all know somebody who just, they just haven't processed the grief. And they are still in in that kind of zone. And that's where intervention and that's where grief counseling. But there are things that we can do as a workplace. Now, would I say that the World Bank is there? Obviously, something happened in 2020, right? There was a huge global pandemic and it's shifted the narrative on all of these topics, but certainly on bereavement. And HR has kind of had the ball placed in their corner to how are we going to deal with people? Because so many people had grief and had bereavement. You can't yeah. give somebody two days yeah. or a day to go to the funeral. I mean, that is just, you're out of touch. Yeah. And what we saw in 2022, and I'm sure this will resonate with you, is that great resignation that all of those people leaving the workforce, because you know what? This is not the kind of workforce I want to work. Right. This is not worth it. So I actually, I did not know about this thing called complicated grief. This is the first time I'm hearing of it, actually. I wish I had known that back then. And I wish my team had known that back then. I mean, I think what you're saying about the workplace being a place of not just support, but even before they're supportive, they they have to be educated and they have to know about these processes. Because sometimes if they're not, They might think they're being supportive, but they're not being supportive in the right way because they don't know all those things that you just mentioned. It's the idea that you can have this open conversation as a supervisor. It comes from the top. The leadership sets the tone, right? For this conversation and for every other conversation, the leadership sets the tone. And so Whereas in my office, the two leaders that we had, these weren't the top, but they were like sort of mid-management. The two of them, the example they were setting was one, come back. It's been 10 days. That's long enough. And one was my father just died and I'm going to come to the office the next day. Those were the examples that we had for how to deal with grief. But about complicated grief, I think it's true that a lot of people will go and sort of throw themselves into work as a way to not deal. And in doing that, as a colleague or as a supervisor, you might get the sense that they are okay, right? Because they're showing up, they might even be laughing and cracking jokes and, and whatever. And then maybe six months, maybe a year, maybe two years down the road, they finally start to crack. They finally start to process. And if you're in that same work environment and there has been this open communication, there has been this education around mental health, grief, trauma, all this other stuff, then even if it does happen, even if that moment of truth and that processing happens months after the fact, you can still go and say, hey, so I know, I don't know what's happening. This has been a while, but this is what I'm feeling now. And that will be received well. 
because people know what's going on. So I think what you just said is so important that the conversation in the workplace around these types of issues that we feel day in and day out is so important. Yeah, it it absolutely is. And HR, I mean, at the World Bank, and I think that this is very funny, it's no longer called human resources. It's called people and culture, which I think HR is obviously trying to be one with the times and reflect what is going on, yeah. especially with inclusion and diversity, et cetera. But I think we don't spend a lot of money. We don't invest in grief, even though we know that it's going to impact our employees. So there's a business, and I hate this because it's just ridiculous. There's a business case to be made mm -hmm. for why you would want to kind of be ahead of the conversation, you know, be ahead of what is it inevitably going to happen. And it's funny because I've been on both sides of this situation. I've been a manager early on in my career to somebody who lost a cousin dramatically, catastrophically overnight. And then I've, I've had my experience. And there is something to be said for experiencing it yourself and empathy. And if you work for someone or with people who are lucky enough to have not experienced grief, then the way that we can help shift that narrative and normalize the conversation, which I know when you're dealing with lots of different cultures and lots of different backgrounds is very, very tricky, is to have people who are in a leadership role wherever it is in your organization, that C-suite group of people talk about, through storytelling, their unique story. Mm -hmm. Exactly as you have done, exactly as I have done, to tell that story about whatever it is. And it doesn't have to just be grief. It could be, you know, there are problems with anxiety now and anxiety became sure. depression, depression, you know, whatever it is. But just to normalize so that mental health is not, again, this black box that we push aside until it rears its ugly head. Yeah. But it's something that, again, it's it's part of our work environment. So take us to the next phase. So you told us about the remission and everything that was happening around that time. If you feel comfortable talking about what ultimately ended up happening and how you were able to get through it also while working, because that obviously was just hugely difficult and quite traumatic. So the month of June, when you work at the World Bank, there's a lot of projects that kind of come to completion because that's the end of your fiscal year. And that year, which was 2017, I had to go to Seattle and take my son, William, because Charles was trying for one kind of valiant last effort to get another bone marrow transplant, to put his cancer finally into remission and move forward. So he and I had lots of conversations about getting out to Seattle. And because I was a consultant and because I'd wrapped up my work mm -hmm. and that there was an understanding with my office that I have to go. And the big boss who became the big, big, big boss, he said, what are you doing? Yeah. Why are you here? You need to be in Seattle. So we flew June 16, June 17. And Charles would pass away July 28. So we were allowed to have so much time with him. 
And he never left the hospital. He was in the hospital. His mother was there. We had, again, those concentric circles yeah. descend upon us in Seattle, including his ex-girlfriend, yeah, including old friends, friends from the Harvard Kennedy School, friends from Lebanon. You know, it didn't matter kind of the origin. We were all in this together. And my workplace was, of course, extremely, extremely supportive of me and would check in and call and send flowers. And they sent me a huge thing so that I could get a massage because, of course, with grief, it manifests physically. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I had one shoulder that was definitely higher than the other. The way that I walked, the way that I carried myself, I wasn't eating. I was in a lot of physical pain. I definitely have lovely grays from that period of time. But I'm so grateful that I was able to spend the time with Charles that I was able to spend. I mean, I think you don't move on from grief, you move forward. Yeah. Part of that was because he and I, we had so many conversations. We had conversations about funeral. We had conversations about what would happen. We had conversations about, you know, if he did die, would he still be with us? You know, we got to talk about we got That's to hammer out our details. Yeah. And there are so few people who have that chance. And so I will always be so grateful to the people in my office at the World Bank who allowed that to happen. Now, had they been very different, then that would have been that. I would have just left because there's no room for working for an employer like that. But I think most people are so scared. And the thing about going through something, especially the loss of a, a partner, is that you're no longer afraid. Mm. You know, I buried a husband. Mm. I have actually, I didn't just bury him. I brought him from Seattle to Lebanon. I had a burial in Beirut with my three-year-old son. Like, I've done it. Yeah. So I'm not afraid to tell you what I need and what I don't need, what I appreciate, what I don't appreciate. It's just almost unimaginable to think about what you were going through at the time and just the amount of strength that you needed to get through something like that. Of course, having communities around you is helpful. But, you know, at the end of the day, when you open your eyes in the morning, if you've slept at all the previous night, it takes a certain amount of strength to go through that. And I find it so helpful the way hearing you describe just the need to communicate, the need to ask for what you want, the importance of asking for what you need. I think that probably anyone listening to you speak about this who hasn't yet done that, but who needs to, it means everything to hear you say, just ask for what you need. You must. And if you don't get what you need, and if you're not getting what you need, then perhaps this is not the place for you. And then if you turn that around and you're talking to an employer, you say, if you're not creating an environment where people can ask for what you need, you're at the risk of losing people who want to contribute, who want to be part of this team, but you're just not making that very easy for them. Again, we go back to the unpleasant business case. You have a vested interest in your employees and their state of being. And we spend a third of our life in place of work. You better make that existence and that state of being it doesn't have to be pleasant, but it has to be cohesive and it has to align with the mission of wanting to make it together. Maybe not make it better, but make it together. Exactly. And I always found that 
it's so important because we spend so much of our time at work to have that component of togetherness. We are in this together. And it's not just that we're in this together when you are doing well. I, I hear so many examples. I've experienced this myself, is that when you are at the top of your game, or when you're struggling, like sort of at an acceptable level of struggle, then there's all this talk about team building, we're, we're a family. But once you kind of slip beyond that acceptable level of struggle, once you start being seen as more of a burden, I do find that still today, largely the workplace that you have given so much of yourself to will just say, this isn't working out. You're not performing well. Here's your last paycheck. Here's your severance. It's always been unacceptable. It is more important than ever for this workplace contract to be just completely restructured. It's not about come work for us. We're going to be a team until you need too much help for us to give. And then we're just going to let you go. Or you have a really bad day and you snap at someone because you are dealing with something at home that you're too afraid to talk about. That's bad behavior. You're out of here. I feel like that doesn't really work anymore for the kind of world that we live in. And so going back to you and your experience, obviously you went through that just horrible experience. You moved forward. You're in a different place of your life now. And now you're back at work with the World Bank. Have you seen a change in the environment since you were there that first time around with what you were dealing with with Charles? And have you changed in terms of how you're showing up and how you're either dealing with your team or teaching others how to deal with these really tough issues? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I left in 2019 and I was a, an ETC, which is basically you're a staff person for the World Bank, but it's a two-year position. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough to meet someone, a very nice Norwegian man who also works at the World Bank, and he lived in London. I was pregnant, then we got married, and then I moved to London. Yeah. And I took my young five-year-old son with me as well. And so when I was moving, I had asked my manager, can I do this remotely in London? I mean, we're five hours ahead from DC, mm -hmm. so it, you know, it should be a total breeze to do this work. And she just couldn't wrap her head around the thoughts that, no, no, I need you here in the office. I need you here next to me, you know, so that I can reach out and grab you. Well, guess what ended up happening? I ended up leaving. I had a beautiful baby and I just set my sights on like early retirement in these placid greens of the UK. And when the pandemic happened and then I think bank staff started to get really, really nervous because as everybody was, how are we going to carry out these huge projects and promises to our donors, to our shareholders when we don't know who we have on staff and staff can't come to the office? So all of a sudden, this framework that had, has been at our fingertips forever, the whole time, the for the whole time, became user friendly, became, you know, the thing that we relied on. And we got our work done. We proved that we could get our work done. We proved that we weren't sitting around, you know, watching TV and playing with our kids and doing laundry. In fact, what we proved was we could do that if we needed to on our way back to our computers. And actually what we proved at the World Bank, and I'm not sure about elsewhere, but I'm sure it's true. We worked harder and longer yeah. Yeah. inside our houses, 
not being able to go out for a coffee down the road or have lunch with our colleagues. So the horse is out of the barn door, unfortunately. And now we like working from home. Some of us, some of us want to go back. But when I was recalled back to the World Bank, it was in this world of, of Zoom. It was on this world of WebEx. And I didn't know how tall my boss was, my new boss. Yes. I mean, he, like, he could have been 10, seven feet tall. I didn't know. I'd never met him in person. I still have not met my coworkers in person. You know, they know each other and they all work in Washington, D.C. And I am here and now in Paris. And the donors are in the European capitals. So we can work remotely, but it is challenging because I can't go out for a beer, which is what I would do, which is part of that community building. I'm much more ghostly figure working remotely. Now, that is not to say that there are not challenges back in headquarters, because right now, as we speak, they're having huge conversations about getting staff back into the office five days a week. And you know that staff association is fighting it. It's from an efficiency, just from a carbon footprint, from sitting in traffic, it, it yeah. makes so much sense now to have a hybrid situation. So I have changed in the sense that I know that if I were to be, God forbid, knock wood, hit by a truck tomorrow, my work at the World Bank would continue. The bank would not shut down. The bank, you know, it, it's it's going to continue. Mm-hmm. I do not bring an important element to it. I am just somebody who has vigor and knowledge. So that cannot be my priority. Mm. My priority is my passion projects, my kids, my family, seeing as much of this life as I possibly can because you just don't know. So work now has to fit into my life and not the other way around. And now that is a very spoiled and entitled view that I can take and not everybody can take. And had I not met Yaakov, I would definitely be wishing I could say that and probably not saying that I would be coming from a very different perspective. But I am fortunate in the sense that at this point in my life, I know that I am replaceable at the office. And so I'm going to give as much as I can, but I'm going to fold up shop when it's the end of the day and I'm not going to let that bother me. You know, work-life balance can't just be a platitude that we have in our mission statement. Yeah, It has to be something that we understand. And I think work-life balance is understanding that on the weekends, no, there's no emails. Do not send work emails. Just forget about that we have to understand that there's a period of time for work and there's a period of time for not working. And that when things happen in life, and whether that's you have lost your partner or you're taking care of elderly parents and young kids and you're going through a divorce, that we have to make arrangements because this is your community. It may be your community from nine to five, Monday to Friday, but this is your community and we have to take care of our community. I completely agree. It's hard to make that sort of connection now because so many people are working from home and there isn't an opportunity to go out and have drinks after work or just do something as team building exercises. Do you have an idea of how to build that type of community and that type of empathy and bond in today's environment? Is there anything either that you're doing or that you wish management would be doing to create that sort of a bond, despite the fact that you're many miles away? I think that they were trying to do this during like the throes of COVID. So I know that the World Bank 
in my husband's department, they were having Christmas parties as breakout rooms. That's a little wonky, but just getting people together, you know, my manager now, she tries to do this kind of like, what is your superpower? You know, just we're not going to talk about work for 30 minutes. You're going to tell us something that's not work related. What is your superpower? And what it does, what it did for me was to hear, you know, because sometimes it's really difficult to read someone when you're a tiny thumbnail, but to be able to hear somebody talk about, you know, their child with divergent needs and how that's your greatest, you know, your biggest honor is getting that person into college. For me, that level of empathy and the level of understanding and, oh, I see this person in a completely different light. Mm -hmm. Again, back to storytelling and being able to share those stories. That makes me much more forgiving and much more understanding when we're working on a project and that person is either flaky or they're overcorrective or something that would usually piss me off. Yeah. So what did you say your superpower was? Well, I said that my superpower was connection, actually, that I could bring groups of people together, disparate groups of people together and make things happen. And mm -hmm. I have a very good read of people and that that has served me pretty well. I definitely see that in you. The last time we talked about this, you also said that you had another superpower. <laughs> you remember? Yes. I said that grief was my superpower, my grief vantage point right now. And as we know, Kubler-Ross, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote about the five stages of grief. Mm -hmm. And we know that. And we know that they, there's no straight line and some people never experience all of them, certainly not in the order that they're presented. And I get washed away by grief sometimes in a, the most unexpected ways. You know, it could be something as silly as hearing that the new prime minister for Lebanon used to work for UNDP and knew Charles really well. And then it's like, Oh, what a waste, you know, what a waste of a life. Mm. And, but the vantage point now of kind of being on, on the hill of grief is that if I see people who are recent widows or widows and they're not talking about it or their kids are having a really hard time. I have a boy in William's class who just lost his dad two years ago to esophageal cancer. Yeah. And it's this kid is having so many behavioral issues. He's having so much anger. He's having, you know, it's coming out in these different ways. And I tried to talk to her very openly in a way of saying, you got to get a grief therapist. You got to get mm -hmm. somebody to talk. You know, it's got to be OK. To talk about this because it's going to manifest, it's going to rear in a different way much later. Yeah. So that's that's where I feel like I'm kind of like. I have the experience and now I'm going to share my experience with, with you, whether you want to hear it or not. I love that. I mean, that is the whole, the mission, the motivation, the ethos of this show is like share. I want you to share everything that you have because we're all in this together and this is the only way we're going to make it. The only way we're going to get stronger and right. be more fulfilled and happy is to know that other people around us have gone through the same things, that people have made it through the challenges we're facing. So I love that. I love the way you're so open and honest about things that you've gone through that are really difficult. It's incredibly inspiring. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks so much, Jasmine. I hope you found this episode helpful. 
Join me next week as I chat with Kim Casey Campbell, a retired U.S. Air Force colonel, fighter pilot, and senior military leader, as well as the author of the best-selling book, Flying in the Face of Fear, a fighter pilot's lessons on leading with courage. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends to help us get these conversations to people who need to hear them. 